QQQ and volatility decay. This is Your Investing Questions Answered by Jason Kelly, and that's me. If you'd like to record a question to be answered on a future episode, leave a message at 310-734-8889. Today's question is one I receive on a regular basis and was asked in various forms by several people in the past week. Representing the group is Nathaniel from Chicago, who asks about volatility decay in ProShares Ultra Pro QQQ, that's TQQQ, a triple leveraged, that is 3x, fund that tracks the NASDAQ 100 stock index. Here's Nathaniel. Hey, Jason. Uh, Nathaniel here. I've been a subscriber for almost six years, and uh, I've been so grateful for you and a big fan of yours, and uh, thanks for guiding us through a lot of crazy emotions over the last uh, few years, last decade. Um, recently, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine. Um, we got in, I got him into the SIG plan system uh, after he heard me talk about it for so many years. And our discussion was largely revolving around TQQQ. And he'd been reading some articles that I think tend to arise during times like these that sort of decry the foolishness of investing in, in the TQQQ, uh, specifically that ETF specifically. And uh, these articles, which I can send if you'd like to see them, they specifically – uh, are talking about something I wasn't super familiar with, which is called volatility decay. Um, so one of the point, one of my points to him broadly was that we don't hold TQQQ exactly. We trade on it four times a year via our plans, allowing us to move our position in and out to varying degrees. And I think this is at least partially a correct perspective in um, defense of folks who say don't hold TQQQ. But I thought I'd ask you three quick questions to kind of help us clarify our discussion. So the first one is, are we in fact holding TQQQ long-term as cautioned by these articles since we are always invested at least 60% in the ETF? And then number two, if so, can you expand on why you don't see that as an issue for what we do? And then lastly, the third one is, what is volatility decay and why is it not a concern for our plans? The article I'm specifically referencing seemed to really emphasize this decay as the primary problem with holding TQQQ as a long-term basis, and I wondered if what your perspective is on that. Thank you, Nathaniel. You did a great job representing this, this common question, so I will be happy to dive into this. The volatility decay is a canard that won't go away. The idea that these funds, these leveraged funds are calculated on a daily basis. Therefore, they're not good for anything but short-term trading is wrong, but will not go away. It's become an evergreen attention getter with new articles warning about it every year. I'm going to answer your three questions, Nathaniel, but out of order to make a more coherent presentation for listeners who may not be as familiar with TQQQ and this issue more broadly. I'll go through the definition of volatility decay, show that it's not unique to leveraged funds, reveal an easy way to see that it doesn't preclude holding them even over fairly long time frames, and then explain how my plans go beyond holding TQQQ to take advantage of its wide price swings. Volatility decay, sometimes called performance decay, refers to the problem of leverage amplifying the moves in an index such that declines in a choppy pattern can grind it down to less than the performance of the index it's tracking. Now, just before I even dive into that, 
notice that this is not necessarily bad. We're, we're talking about a limited time frame, and we're talking about a, a fund that, that is magnifying the move of an index. So if, in a certain time frame, which is never forever, right? Time frames end. We go into new ones. They get longer. They, you know, they're, it's a constantly extending line. So slipping below the performance of an index in one discrete time frame doesn't necessarily invalidate an investment or even an investment approach. It's okay to do that if over a, a different time frame, i.e. a longer time frame, you can do better by going through that kind of wide volatility. So right away, we need to just understand that, look, falling behind an index is not necessarily the end of the world. It's not even undesirable uh, in many cases. But let's leave that aside for a moment and just jump into the math behind volatility decay, which is quite simple and, I should point out, covered in my books. Consider, for instance, an index starting at 1,000, then going through the following daily moves. Up 1%, down 1%, up half a percent, up 1%, down 2%. At the end of this five-day journey, it's at 995 rounded. Now let's run it through 3x leverage, assuming perfect tracking. So up 3%, down 3%, up 1.5%, up 3%, down 6%. At the end of this five-day journey, the 3x tracking is at 982. So 1x, that is exactly the move of the index, 1x volatility ended at 995, 3x ended at 982. Aha, say the critics. See, that's what we mean. Right, there's your volatility decay. Mathematically, it exists, and most articles warning against the dangers of holding TQQQ and other leveraged funds highlight the math to argue their point. And, I should add, most do so as if they're discovering it. They're not. This issue has been known since the first day a person borrowed money to buy something, which was, what, hundreds of years ago? It was certainly well understood by the time leveraged ETFs launched. And, of course, I knew about it and factored it into my research when devising my leveraged signal plans. But notice that it's not unique to leverage. Leverage merely magnifies, well, everything, the up and the down, and therefore the distances in between. In my earlier example, it would take the index only a 0.5% jump to regain break-even at 1,000, but would take the 3x leverage fund a 1.8% jump to get there. So, good thing it has 3x leverage on its side, right? It declines more deeply, but recovers more steeply. In this example, when the index recovered 0.5%, the 3x fund would recover 1.5%, putting it not so far from break-even, 997, requiring just another 0.3% flutter away from break-even at 1,000. Another angle on this is that non-leverage also needs to recover more than it lost. It's not just leverage funds that deal with this. This matters because critics of leverage say that it declines so far that it takes forever for it to recover. Uh, recover, But the issue of performance decay in this regard is not unique to leverage. In the earlier example, 
Any decline in the index requires a bigger gain to regain break-even, and not just in that example, in, in any real-life or fictional example. A, a, a decline requires a bigger recovery to get back to break-even. If the index, in our example, declines 10% from 1,000, it must then appreciate, not 10%, but 11.1% to regain break-even. Bigger examples make this even more clear. A 50% decline, for example, requires a 100% recovery to regain break-even. Note that even mortgages introduce volatility decay, so to speak. Nobody calls it that, but it's a similar thing. If you put down $200,000 on a $1 million home, then the home declines 30%. On paper, you've lost all your equity and then some. Because of leverage, you lost more than you invested to the tune of a 150% loss rather than a 100%. This is just the downside of leverage, however it's applied. But note that this cannot happen in a leveraged ETF. Your loss is limited to the full amount of your investment, making leveraged funds one of the safer ways to put leverage to work. Very few people mention that. And back to your unfortunate real estate investment. You now owe... $1 million on a $700,000 home. So even if you sell it, you won't recoup your down payment and will still owe the bank $100,000. That's called being underwater. To regain break-even on this home, you would need it to rise not 30%, but 43%. There's your volatility decay in the housing market. Now pause here to ask yourself, if holding a leverage investment over the long term is so dangerous, then why does real estate financed with 30-year mortgages work? Because the housing market rises over time. But guess what? So does the stock market. Which leads to my next point. Even buying and holding TQQQ has worked over long time frames. Let's go to that next. So, even buying and holding TQQQ has worked over long time frames. You don't even need mathematical explanations to see this. Just pull up a long-term chart of TQQQ. I will do so now. From the end of 2010 to the end of 2020, TQQQ rose nearly 6,000%. What more proof do you need that leverage can work over long time frames? Whenever I point to a time frame like this one, a critic says, well, you cherry-picked a good one, but on the forever timeline, they don't work. But we're not examining forever, which is a tough time frame to encapsulate. We're looking at whether leveraged funds can work when held over long time frames. The answer is clearly yes. A decade's not forever, but it counts as long in most people's book. And 2010 to 2020 was a decade that included all the usual volatility and many TQQQ crashes along the way, such as minus 44% in the debt ceiling brinkmanship of 2011, but then it rose 130% in the next seven and a half months. Minus 41% from July 2015 to February 2016, but then it rose 73% in the next seven and a half months. Minus 27% from January to April 2018, but then it rose 63% in the next five months. Minus 55% in the autumn tech wreck of 2018, 
but then it rose 129% in the next 11 months, minus 69% in the February to March 2020 COVID crash, but then it rose 344% in the next five months, and so on. We can do this for any decade. This decade was not cherry-picked for its smooth upward line. There are no smooth upward lines. There's a generally rising line, which everybody conveniently forgets in downswings, but it's there. Stocks fluctuate along that generally rising line, and leveraged funds magnify those fluctuations. Yes, they enter bigger setbacks when the indexes they than the indexes they track, but they then recover at faster speeds to, ultimately, higher highs. Even over this volatile decade that I'm looking at here, noisy with warnings from bears on everything from federal debt threatening the dollar's reserve currency status to the debt ceiling to the taper tantrum to the election of Donald Trump to Brexit to valuation concerns and, and just the usual mental detritus of headline obsessors. For example, the news in March 2020 was grim for stock investors. <laughs> Market Watch ran an opinion piece warning about a watershed moment for stocks if they couldn't get past some, couldn't hold some pet level of the authors. And I say pet level because they all have one. It's the 200-day moving average. It's the crossover of the 50-day over the 200-day. It's this, it's that. But remember what Warren Buffett said. If he turns the charts upside down, he still sees the same message. <laughs> Nothing works, folks. Joseph Calhoun at Alhambra Investments titled a report, Is This the Beginning of a Recession? He opened with this lovely soliloquy. As I sit here Monday evening with the Dow having closed down 2,000 points and the 10-year Treasury yield around 0.5%, the title of this update seems utterly ridiculous. With the new coronavirus still spreading and a collapse in oil prices threatening the entire shale oil industry, recession is now the expected outcome. Most observers seem to question only the potential length and depth of the coming downturn, if we get sufficient evidence to call a recession, we will do more selling. Nice. Talk of selling and plans to sell as prices careen downward. My plans do the opposite. Perk up and buy into low prices, then perk up and sell into high ones. The math works better for those seeking profit. Finally, none other than the New York Times ran a report Dow skids into bear market, heralding an uncertain future, which opened thusly, quote, the 11-year bull market, which grew in tandem with one of the longest economic expansions in United States history, weathered a European debt crisis and survived President Trump's trade war with China, is dead. Falling share prices have incinerated $5 trillion in stock market wealth in less than a month, end quote. And five months later... TQQQ had risen more than 300%. Finally, although leveraged ETFs can work when held over long time frames, despite warnings of volatility decay, they work best with a plan that puts their heightened volatility to work. That's what my SIG plans do. The 9-SIG plan buys the lower lows of TQQQ and sells the higher highs on a quarterly basis. The same process works on non-leveraged funds or lesser leveraged funds, and indeed I offer one of each of those, 3-SIG and 6-SIG respectively. But it works even better with the 3x leverage of TQQQ and the high volatility of the NASDAQ 100 index. 
It's not for anybody unwilling to go through big swings, but for those who are and confident in the generally rising line, the 9-SIG approach is a winner. Nathaniel, you asked if the fact that the 9-SIG plan never allocates less than 60% of its account to TQQQ makes the plan a buy-and-hold approach. First of all, the plan can allocate less than 60% of its balance to TQQQ. If the fund rises enough, the plan will signal selling more and more without a mechanism to prevent it from selling to less than a 60% allocation. I know why you flagged 60%, because that's what we reset back to from time to time, such as after a 30-down period in which we skip two quarterly sell signals to stay invested for recovery, like we're in now. However, there is no rule saying the plan can't allocate less than 60% to TQQQ. Indeed, it can, so keep that in mind. Second, no, it's not a buy and hold plan. It's a quarterly price reaction plan that tends to keep most of its balance in the stock fund. All long-term plans must do so or they'll lose to the S&P 500 because stocks generally go up. Remember that long-term rising line. Our buys and sells of TQQQ are not perfectly timed, but nothing is. They take the correct action each quarter in light of that quarter's price change. That's all, but that's enough. When TQQQ goes up a little, we sell a little. When it goes up a lot, we sell a lot. When it goes down a little, we buy a little. When it goes down a lot, we buy a lot. We can, and have, run out of buying power, and in such time frames, the plan is indistinguishable from a buy and hold plan, but it eventually exits that posture and starts reacting to quarterly price changes again. Its time frames that look like buy and hold are begun at prices well below the fund's last cycle price peak because of the quarterly signal purchases that precede an all-in allocation. And so in that sense, they are better than buy and hold plans, which would have been uh, all in earlier at that price peak, but we would have had buying power back at the price peak and then used it as the fund descended. So that's another way that they are different. But once the, once the, the, the plan is all in or nearly all in, then, then from that point forward until it exits that posture, then it would look like a buy and hold plan. It's not a perfect approach. But it's one that beats the market over time, and it's a superb way to harness the wide fluctuation of TQQQ. On a closing note, don't get scared by fancy-sounding language around leveraged ETFs. There's nothing complicated going on. They simply amplify the daily moves of an index, which works in most time frames, even on a buy-and-hold basis, but works splendidly in a plan that buys their extra low prices and sells their extra high ones. I read in one report warning against volatility decay the following, quote, These vehicles are designed for short-term directional bets as the returns are path-dependent. They should not be held long-term, end quote. This is good for a few laughs. First, what investment returns are not path-dependent? Whatever you own, it will produce profit or loss depending on the path of something. This is not unique to leveraged funds. Second, short-term bets are a waste of time. Nothing works to reliably call the market in the short term. Not sentiment, moving averages, valuation, nothing. Seriously, folks, nothing. So if leveraged funds are only good for a useless activity, then they're useless. But our experience proves they're not. Third, it's easy to see on a chart that leveraged ETFs can do fine over long term, such as the decade I examined earlier in this episode. 
It's easy for analysts and marketers to create fear around the wild swings of leverage ETFs. But if you understand them, know what you're signing up for, and use those swings properly, you can profit handsomely. Thank you for listening. This is Your Investing Questions Answered by Jason Kelly, and that's me. To record a question for a future episode, please call 310-734-8889. You can subscribe to the podcast from any of the links at jasonkelly.com to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to The Kelly Letter. Prices are still low, but the market has been rising at the start of 2023. Please become a Kelly Letter subscriber today at jasonkelly.com to start your own market-beating SIG plans, including the TQQQ Harnessing 9 SIG plan I discussed in this episode. Current subscribers, thank you for doing business with me. I'll see you Sunday. Sunday.